Welcome everyone to another episode of the Backstory Postcard podcast. Akash and I today are very excited to talk with Pascaline Dupas, who came to visit today in San Diego uh, from Stanford. Welcome, Pascaline. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Um, let me just say, I usually try to um, introduce the guest on the show by saying a few words of what they work on before we start getting into the backstory of the paper. Um, but I came across this uh, statement on your website that I found pretty inspiring, and I think it better describes like what your, what your work is about, and I wanted to read it out loud. He says, I am a development economist seeking to better understand challenges facing poor households in lower income countries. My aim is to identify tools and policies that can help overcome these challenges and reduce global poverty. So I'm going to basically, before we start on the paper, I really kind of wanted to ask you a little bit of backstory of this, like your research agenda in general. Because as I said, I think this, this statement is, is very inspiring. And, and I'm wondering, like, uh, was it always what uh, this that drove you into research in the first place or has it been changing over time? And can you elaborate more on that? Yes, I think it's always been uh, my motivation because I hesitated quite a bit uh, between going more the implementer practitioner route versus the research route. Before doing a PhD, I was working as um, as a research assistant for, for Michael Kramer and um, Ted Miguel and Esther Duflo in, in Western Kenya, in Busia, the famous Busia uh, that was back in 2001. And uh, when I was there, it was, you know, we were working in partnership with an NGO and there were a bunch of other NGOs on the ground. And I really enjoyed the hands-on work part, like feeling like, okay, there's this like challenge right now, you know, kids have worms, what can we do to, you know, get rid of the worms? Um, you know, farmers don't have uh, tools, what can we do to expand access to these tools? I really enjoyed that part. Uh, and I really considered just like going the NGO route. Uh, but then ultimately I thought research is a good way to have a more holistic approach um, to challenges because I felt like the NGOs that I was meeting on the ground were very much uh, siloed and unidimensional. So one work was working on HIV, one was working on you know, income generation, one was working on education. But then I felt everything was interrelated. Like the reason why uh, you know there is a lot of HIV is because you know people don't necessarily have a source of income, and there is transactional you know sex as a result, and then education helps have more income. And so I thought, as a researcher, as an academic, we have the freedom to you know jump from one topic to the next, or to bring them all together. And being like monomaniac kind of uh, with one mission, uh, the NGO was going to be after a while frustrating. So I chose to go into research for that reason, but really motivated by the idea that it was by understanding better the issues that I could help the implementation and the practitioners do as much of a, you know, as good of a job as they, they can. Nice. Yeah, uh, that's, that's very fascinating. Um, and uh, actually, just a quick follow up on that. Um, you were saying like uh, that as a researcher we have the freedom to also jump from topic to topic and like I think your research agenda is very very broad right and uh, would, uh, do you have any take for, uh, on like the, this idea that like, some, there is some type of researcher that maybe sometimes uh, tend to be like uh, work on many different projects and some type of researcher that they want to be the, the uh, to, to just work on maybe one uh, one area and what are the trade-off there uh, if there is any like is it just a uh, um, something that is uh, research specific or time specific or 
uh, does it tell us anything about what the profession can value uh, on these two uh, lines? Uh, well, so I think there are returns to specialization for sure, but to me, specialization is more about a sp maybe a context or a region rather than a domain, because, it, you know, as I was just saying, things are interconnected, uh, you know, we, it's hard to think about barriers to education without thinking about uh, income. Or, so I, I, I do believe that uh, spanning too wide a range of, of context may, you know, limit your understanding of a specific context. So most of my work has been in Sub-Saharan Africa. And in fact, within you know, Sub-Saharan Africa is a very big uh, place. There are many, many countries, and a lot of it has been in Kenya and in Ghana, which are countries where I spend a lot of time and I know very well. And I, you know, when I branched out to new countries, I would always try to make sure I would understand the context as much as I could before. I really love to spend time in the field, and you know, I don't really work much outside of this context. I mean, I have now I started working in India um, five, six years ago with my co-author Radhika Jain, who is from India, and, and you know, she knows the context often you know, better than me, and uh, without her, I think uh, I would not have had the, you know, the ability to understand things as much. So I think there is definitely a trade-off if you try to span too wide uh, a range of context, you're not gonna have the expertise. But within a context, being able to think through the interconnections between domains, I think is very important and something that I really value. Economists are always like uh, criticized for like uh, playing uh, too much into the field of other you know disciplines, and it's true that we get a lot of inspirations and ideas from you know sociology and history and psychology. But uh, I think it's it's great to be able to you know obviously you want to give credit to the discipline, but they bring things together and think about their interconnection. This is actually probably the perfect segue to start talking about the paper you presented today, since yeah. it's a project that takes like historical perspective and is in Burkina Faso, so mm -hmm. it's like Africa, like you were saying. Um, so the, the title of the paper is Colonial Origin of Fertility Behaviors, Evidence from the Role of Forced Labor Migration mm -hmm. in Burkina Faso. Um, can you tell us a little bit what was going on in the literature prior to, to your paper and what questions your paper asks and what do you find? So, the, I mean, I don't know if you're asking about the literature on fertility behavior or the literature on forced labor. This paper didn't start with, oh, this is where the literature is, this is a whole, let's fill this hole. This, this paper started because I was on a plane reading a book about uh, some history of Burkina Faso. I was on my way to Burkina Faso for a, a project uh, and I read about um, this history of forced labor uh, that the French uh, colonial powers were uh, imposing on the, on, on the local population. And this was a pretty, uh, I had a very a pretty strong reaction to what I was reading because number one, being uh, French, I felt extremely embarrassed and ashamed of having never really heard about this before. Um, it's not something that's taught in school at all. But that's no excuse. I'm, you know, a scholar, and and uh, um, I felt like I should have at least heard about this in some context or another, and I had not. So, it was you know, okay, I need to learn more. Um, but then also it triggered some sort of like um, one of my pet peeve, I have to say, uh, with economic history in the past, which is that I feel like um, there's some sort of bias in what we learn from history because we only get to see the papers 
that find long-term persistence of things. <laughs> and I feel like if you investigate the long-term persistence of something and it's not there, then it doesn't get published. And so after I read this and, and realized that not every part of Burkina Faso was equally affected by these policies, and this was like a standard kind of regression discontinuity type of framework, uh, you know, analysis being available from that, I was like, okay, this is my chance to actually sh like show that there are some, you know, historical uh, discontinuities that don't persist because locally people, uh, you know, in, in on either side of these uh, ancient borders don't talk about these things. There is no, they don't remember any of it or it's somehow it didn't, people didn't want to talk about this and so there's no no memory of it. And so I told, you know, my co-authors, okay, let's do this, but we have to commit, you know, I'm not going to get into getting the data and doing all the analysis uh, and then be like, oh, this is your result, so let's forget about it because that's precisely what I don't like about economic history, that we only see the positive results, I mean, all the negative results, but not the zeros. Um, so that's why we got going. Like, I read about this, I have a <laughs> you know, intellectual duty to investigate this. Now, it turns out that then we're like, okay, now we need to educate ourselves about this literature because, you know, we, I didn't know much about uh, forced labor, as I said. Um, obviously, there's a vast uh, literature in demography on fertility in West Africa, which we were interested in separately. But, you know, this is a long answer to your question, but the point is it didn't start with the literature. It just started with this kind of, uh, you know, um, let's, you know, you stumble upon something and sometimes you just have to pursue it no matter what. Um, but now I can answer the question about the literature if you want, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, you can even just say just very briefly yeah. what, what your paper does and what you find. So yes. for those of you that were not today uh, in the audience, they they okay. the context and then. Yeah, so, the, so very quickly, this policy of forced labor was the French colonial administration was forcibly taking uh, or requesting villages to provide young men that would be, uh, you know, taken to um, Côte d'Ivoire uh, and some of them to uh, French Sudan, today's Mali, uh, to work on large public works projects like railroads, irrigation projects, or to work for private companies. Um, and so the question we are looking at is the extent to which this very um, uh, harsh, uh, you know, policy taking, possibly taking youth uh, from villages, which lasted for, you know, a very long period of time from, you know, uh, essentially is World War One to after World War Two, um, led to fertility responses uh, in the villages, initially by having to compensate for the missed labor, but then later on maybe by uh, you know, changing modes of production. And so we, we actually, to our surprise, we find that the areas more affected by forced labor have lower fertility today, much lower fertility today than those less affected. And this was, you know, not what we thought uh, could be going on. We hypothesized the opposite. We hypothesized that uh, when you um, lose uh, labor to the colonial powers, you need to compensate uh, for that lost labor because these are uh, societies that are relying on agriculture in a context where the soil is very arid, it's very hard to cultivate, you need a lot of hands um, to, 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 to farm the soil. So we expected to see a response which was I have more kids to compensate for the lost labor. 
we see the opposite. Um, and so then we go into trying to understand what, what explains that, and it seems to be that, you know, this initially coerced uh, labor migration turned into voluntary labor migration after independence, um, and this labor migration allows remittances um, to provide uh, resources for the local communities, the sending communities, meaning it reduces their reliance on agriculture and in turn it reduces the need um, for, uh, for child labor on the farm and so it reduces the demand for children. Uh, so that's the mechanism. And it was very interesting, <laughs> very interesting to be there today. Um, and uh, that's actually something you mentioned today as well, that, uh, that you came in with like some different prior. And uh, I'm wondering like, if you can elaborate a little more on that, especially maybe thinking, like, would have you done something different if your prior were like, different uh, in terms of like, how you prepare for the project itself, in a sense? Um, or you know, can you just explain a little more, I guess, uh, this backstory? Yeah, so I guess we were already, you know, the, the project that I was working on in Birkin FSO, for which I was you know, on the plane when I read about this, um, is on, on fertility uh, and trying to understand the determinants of fertility behavior. So, you know, fertility was, was top of mind for uh, myself and my co-authors. And so that's why we immediately thought that we could, um, we wanted to look at the effects on, uh, on fertility. Um, knowing that the puzzle, as it's been called in the literature, this West Africa fertility puzzle, is why is the demand for children still so high uh, in Burkina Faso, Niger, uh, you know, Mali. And so that's kind of the background. That was the demography literature has uh, been wondering about why is the demographic transition being delayed and, and really slow in this part of the world. And so our prior was, well, maybe this historical uh, uh, practices could contribute to that. So our prior was informed by the fact that the puzzle, as it's called, is very high demand for children. You know, I think if we had a different uh, prior, it wouldn't have really changed too much because ultimately we were limited by the data available. Because we are doing this project on fertility, we had collected this, you know, uh, very detailed baseline survey on um, you know, 15,000 households across 500 villages around fertility. So in any, you know, we, we use that data. This is a project where the only new data, if I may say that we collected, is archival data and going to the archives and uh, being able to reconstruct the history. But we were otherwise very limited by available survey data. We didn't collect new survey data. We, we tried actually to do um, what's called um, oral histories and we sent some of our um, colleagues in Burkina Faso, we're working on the other project, to talk to uh, the elders and you know the, the, the most elderly in the villages to see if they remembered. And that's how you know, I told you earlier that people don't seem to know of, uh, or don't remember. And in fact, no, no one really had much to say. Uh, it was, I mean, most people who were really in, uh, affected, uh, many of them have, um, have passed away, uh, but those were they were still young to have seen their uncles or grandpas, uh, you know, uh, who have told stories, didn't seem to remember those stories. So, you know, we, we, we tried to get some oral histories and we didn't really, we, the main conclusion we got is that this is not something that is very 
top of mind um, for people. I want to come back for a second to when uh, you were saying how the idea came about, like, and you were reading this book. Mm. Uh, um, is uh, do you, is that how you uh, usually came up with ideas? Like, and um, has like this, like, uh, like do you, if you have any, like, maybe you don't have any, like, system of coming up with ideas. But I'm just wondering, like, if uh, these have evolved over time uh, for you in the course of your career. Um. No, so I don't usually get ideas from um, reading books. Um, I mean, I, I actually did get an idea from uh, reading a book recently, but then I realized this was exactly the idea that Sarah Lowe's had had like five years ago, and she already wrote that paper, uh, which is because I read this wonderful book uh, uh, by Matlon, a Cameronese writer, um, called The Blunder in English. In French, is uh, Les Aveugles de uh, Bafia, and it's about, you know, the French, um, I mean, it's related to colonial history. Uh, I'm going down that, you know, history path right now, but uh, anyway, so then I was like, oh, okay, someone has already gotten that idea. So the few times I've had ideas from books, it's not been uh, very successful. So historically, I mean, not historically, originally when I was uh, younger, when I, all of my projects, uh, all of my ideas, because I completely like imagination, we are very hands-on and um, based on co conversations with um, with friends uh, in the field, and so in particular, uh, or like experiences I, I, I saw in the field. So my job market paper was on HIV prevention, and it's really you know started from a conversation with a colleague in Kenya who's telling me how. She really had to give money to her sister who was in secondary school for, you know, like pocket money. Otherwise, the sister may have a sugar daddy. And I was like, well, that, that'd be crazy. Like, she, you know, there's HIV out there. Why would she have a sugar daddy? And my friend was like, well, you know, these girls, you know, there's a lot of pressure to look one way or the other. So sugar daddies. And then, you know, I was like, the next day I was going to a school uh, for another project. And so I asked. The students, oh, you know, who do you think is more likely to have HIV? Uh, a 35-year-old guy or, you know, 20-year-old uh, guy? And most people said the 20-year-old guy, even though it's, it's the truth is the opposite. And so I was like, oh, okay, so really there's an information uh, problem. And so that's, uh, that's how the idea of my job bucket paper came about. So it's like this friend of mine was stating, uh, you know, a phenomenon that... Um, uh, suggested some information frictions, and then uh, I thought, okay, that seems fairly easy to to uh, fix that information frictions. Let's try that. Uh, a lot of my work has been about pricing for uh, health products, and that really came about. Again, I you know I created with uh, with with friends uh, an NGO that was giving free bed nets for pregnant women. That was way back when, 20 years ago. And then for, um, for, because of that, I got a fellowship in Silicon Valley. Um, and so I, sp I went to this retreat somewhere, you know, in Sierra Nevada. And there were all these Silicon Valley people. Uh, at the time, I had never lived in Silicon Valley. And when I said, oh, yeah, we give free bed nets to pregnant women, they're like, what? You give things away for free? That's a crazy idea. Don't you know people don't value things that are free? I'm like, uh, no, <laughs> I didn't know that. People were very, very, felt very, very strongly. And so I was like, well, you know, I think there are potential reasons why 
in this context, it may not be that bad to give things for free. People are, you know, really liquidity constrained, all of that. But then I realized there's so much anti-free distribution that it may be worth like checking out uh, in, and providing data to, you know, uh, to the to the issue. So that's how I got started on a number of studies looking at the extent to which, you know, free distribution versus cost sharing, uh, the trade-off between uh, targeting people are going to put products to use versus expanding access. You know, then I came back next year to the same, or a few years later, some fellowship. I said, oh, okay, I did the study. Look, it's a much control trial. You know, free stuff. Actually, it's pretty quite uh, used. It's, it's not a bad idea. And then people are like, okay, but how about the long-term effects? You know, if people are handouts, then they are going to, you know, get used to the free stuff. And I'm like, oh, okay, hold on, hold on, because we can actually look at that. We just have to wait and come back after a year. Give people, you know, initially got free versus not free. And all the opportunity to buy, and we can see the differences. So you know everything was very practical. Like you know, I uh, I would encounter bottlenecks in how you know practitioners or donors or uh, local communities would try to go about a problem, and I'd be like, okay, that's an empirical question. It's pretty easy to test. Um, uh, and and understand whether you know this mechanism dominates or that one. Let's do it. Um, so that was, you know, my, and then you go from one to the next because once you're on the ground doing this, doing that, and you 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 get a new, you know, uh, you 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 move along the uh, the chain. So you know, one of my studies uh, on uh, subsidies for health products was in looking at the supply side. Like, okay, once. The work I established that it was not a bad idea to give things for free. That how you get a lot of people to have access to this good. Okay, well, you need to implement a delivery scheme. Will health workers do it, or will they be corrupt, or will they shirk, or you know? So then let's look at the supply, like set up a program and look at the, the delivery side. So you know, you just go from one idea to the next, and more quicker, quicker than you realize, you, you, your 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 schedule is is full of things. And then after a while, you become old, uh, and then people come to you uh, and say, oh, you know, we have this issue. Can we work on this uh, together? So I started working on healthcare uh, in India uh, with Radhika because, you know, there are essentially some uh, state governments working in partnership with JPAL uh, were interested in understanding how to make their programs more efficient. And then JPAL asked me, oh, can you, you know, help? work on this and so it started with you know said governments want to understand better the challenges uh that the data suggests are there and then you analyze some data and then so after a while you don't have you're not in the business of coming up with ideas anymore uh you get the honor to be asked to help you know um troubleshoot yeah okay well yeah that's that's a great <laughs> a great uh, evolution um and uh, like I w wanted to come back to what you said because like I I I feel like sometimes like okay like you were in the field and you were talking to people and, mm -hmm. and, and not also not in the field just talking to people it seems mm -hmm. that like all of this like just being open and curious and and trying to identify these like issues uh, mm -hmm. was important but I feel like sometimes like um, you may like talk to people but then kind of like lose the important point like maybe connecting the dots between the things is kind of like key would you say that's the key and how how do you connect the dots? What's the best approach to make sure you don't miss uh, some of this into the conversations when you when you talk to people? Uh, 
I mean, it, it's hard to answer this question in general because I feel like it's really depends on the problem. But uh, at least to me, I find like talking with people that that's how first of all, making sure that the, you're studying, you know, pressing problems or like problems that people uh, who are um, affected by these problems do, you know, experience as problems or recognize as problems. If you work on something that people are like, what, why, you know? <laughs> no, that's not an issue. Like, we don't have this problem, then okay. That. So just already making sure that you're addressing, you know, issues that are relevant is number one, and just talking with people whose lives uh, are, you know, could be improved, or at least the people whose lives you want to improve uh, through your work seems to be uh, an obvious uh, number one thing. And then people usually have um, a very good sense of what's going on and what are the barriers and, and, uh, and you know, to understanding also how people um, make their decisions, what information they have, what they tell you they are missing, what they, they think would be helpful, and then where you can connect the dots because you have the literature in mind. And so you go, oh, okay, I know in this other context, this piece was different and, and the outcome ended up being very different. So how maybe this is uh, one, you know, the one key missing piece here that we could try to work on. Uh, or, so it's being able to bring in um, some, essentially some, some data from other contexts. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, big data matters as we know in the sense that if, if you only have five data points, it's hard to, to, uh, to, 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 to see uh, any relationship when you have five thousand, you can see a relationship. So, as researchers, we have this uh, chance to have read so much, uh, or to be able to read things, to be able to actually get uh, many more data points. Whereas people on the ground, then sometimes they only have their context to think about, and so we can help bring in information, if you will, or like uh, some understanding of the forces that at play that can help uh, think through, okay, what, what could improve the environment in which um, this community is, 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 is uh, evolving in a way that could uh, expand opportunities. So that's how I'm thinking of it being, you know, what we can bring. Otherwise, yeah, why, why you know, I can be there, talk with people, I get ideas from people, why am I the one to do the research, you know? <laughs> I mean, there's a practical answer, which is that, you know, I'm the one who has access to the resources to do it, which hopefully we can change and make sure that, you know, everyone has access to resources to the research. But the training that we can bring to the, you know, it's it really this, this this vast knowledge that we have access to. Uh, is it because, we, you know, we've already read things or because we know where to find things? And, um, Especially when you start out as a grad student, um, how do you uh, make these connections in the first place? It's just, uh, I guess, uh, is it just uh, being just uh, out there, or is there anything else that maybe uh, you should be you should be doing to try to make these connections? I mean, I think being out there is very important. I um, I don't remember why I wanted to work on global development uh, issues. I have no recollection of how this came to be of interest, but I remember I really wanted to go um, and live um, 
you know, somewhere, um, you know, on, on the ground to understand better what was going on. And I kind of struggled actually to <laughs> find a job um, working for an NGO, having no experience whatsoever, but a master's degree from some French university, you know, was not very helpful. So I was very grateful when I got the chance to go spend a year in, in Kenya working as an RA for, um, uh, for Michael and, and others. And that's really, that's really was my chance to, to I, make, I made a lot of friends and, um, you know, I would spend the entire day with, with surveyors and have dinner at the local uh, hotel, you know, every night and you become friends with the waiters and, uh, and you hear their stories and you visit their homes and um, you get to really get a much better understanding. Uh, and I also highly recommend reading reading uh, books, novels. I mean, I've learned a lot about the context by reading. Uh, I mean, non you know, narrative, nonfiction, fiction, uh, you know, historical books. But you know, there's uh, yeah, there are just some brilliant, there's some brilliant literature uh, that also helps you get a much better sense for you know, life in, in, in contexts that are different from the one that, you know, you grew up in. Um, we have just a couple of minutes left. Um, but before we end, I want to try something new. <laughs> so let's see how it goes. I, I like to call this the fast three. I'm going to ask you like three, three quick questions that you should try to respond with like one sentence. If you can, <laughs> it's gonna be hard. I talk a lot, as you've noticed. <laughs> and uh, you, you know, you you can tell me maybe this doesn't work, but let's try. Uh, and you can elaborate more if you want. Um, so the first question is: uh, While in grad school, what was the best advice you have received? Uh, it's really hard. I was I had a very unusual grad school uh, experience. I uh, so. Uh, I don't, yeah, I'm, I'm afraid uh, I can't answer that question. Um, that is fine, that is uh, fine. It yeah. might be a too hard of a question. No, I mean, uh, you can I even know, just I, say you know, in maybe, general what's no, the best advice. No, I guess maybe, maybe, the, maybe the best advice was that once I had uh, an idea and I floated it in a, in a, in a workshop and then, and then, you know, that idea was implemented um, by somebody else and I was told, well, why did you wait? You know, just <laughs> don't don't just get stuff done. You know, you can't complain if people are faster than you. Just get stuff done. So I guess it was you know maybe a good <laughs> advice. Like just like do things. That's nice. Yeah. That's nice. The second question is not only in grad school then, but in general in in the profession. Mm -hmm. What's the worst advice you have ever received or heard? Uh, saying to some grad students. The worst advice um, uh, it's to 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 drop um, a project because um, the hypothesis that you had um, is rejected by the data and pretend that you never tested the hypothesis and put it in a file drawer I think that's dead for science, um, yeah. and I, I've seen nice. that, that that happens a lot, uh, and I'm, I'm 
very happy with that. So. Okay. Uh, That's nice. Yeah. <laughs> Great. And the last one, and you, you're probably gonna kill me, but um, what is like what you think is like the most important advice if you have one that you yourself try like tend to give to your students uh, in grad school? Yeah, it's to work on thing that you care about, uh, thing that really matter to you. Uh, you want to be passionate about. Not try to think of what's gonna, you know, sell well in a seminar. What's gonna make you look smart? Just go for thing that you really care about. It's a long road. And it's hard work in the sense that it takes years to get answers to questions. So if you don't care about the answer for you know, for its own sake, and you only care about it for the prestige or for the publication, then you're gonna be miserable. So just follow your your heart. <laughs> And I think that ends perfectly the podcast. Thank you so much, Pascaline, for your time today. Really Thank you so much. It. My pleasure. It's a great idea to do this podcast. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs>